a lot of body focused behaviors do arise around adolescence. And there usually is some kind of a trigger that is one of those attachment disruptions. But one thing that I discovered only after really being in the field and really studying, hearing from the parents of teenagers I work with, and also learning more about the early lives of my clients, is that a lot of times there was also a disruption in those very, very early years, zero to two. There's also a sensory processing issue that develops at a very early age. And so I've really been studying how sensory processing and difficulties, disruptions and attachment all kind of come together to lay the ground for this to come out later in life. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey everyone, this is Ann. You know, we can all relate when we are under stress doing certain things to help self-soothe ourselves, whether it's biting our nails, hair pulling, maybe skin picking, or biting your cheek. These are all behaviors we do unconsciously to self-soothe, but sometimes these kind of behaviors get out of control. And when they do, they're really a painful source of stress and shame. Today, we're going to bring you a new attachment-informed psychodynamic model for treating these type of painful, shame-associated behaviors. My co-host, Sue Marriott, talks with our guest, Stacey Nickell. So for the past 20 years, Nickell has worked with people who struggle with body-focused, repetitive behaviors. She is a certified group psychotherapist and provides workshops and institutes both locally right here in Austin, Texas with the Austin Group Psychotherapy Society, as well as nationally with American Group Psychotherapy Association. So today, Sue and Stacy shed light on these often hidden patterns, and they also are going to discuss Nickell's new book, Treatment for Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors. Hey, Stacy! welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Thank you. It is really good to see you. Um, why don't we just start out by kind of if you'll orient everybody to who you are and your perspective, and then we were going to dive into the super interesting conversation. Yes. Okay, good. So I'm Stacey Nickell. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I've been in practice in Austin, Texas since 2007. This whole time, I've been specializing in body-focused repetitive behaviors, like skin picking, hair pulling, and cheek cuticle and nail biting. And I've really worked on developing a psychodynamic approach to working with this population. And finally, I was able to kind of get my voice out into the world with my new book, Treatment for Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors, an Integrative Psychodynamic Approach. So I'm really excited to be here and to talk a little bit about my book. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, another thing that I just happened to know about you, we are colleagues here in Austin, Texas, and I've had the pleasure of working together before, is that you're also a boxer. I am a boxer, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and I used to fight as an amateur boxer. And I must say, I am now a coach, an assistant coach for a women's boxing team. And I have to say, I like it better when I get to be on this side and I don't have to be hit in the head anymore. <laughs> but it was fun at the time. <laughs> That's just such a fun fact. Um, so tell us, how did you get interested? You said that this has been your specialty, kind of that you're, you've really focused on it. How did you get interested? And then right away, because this will be an unusual topic, you know, body-focused repetitive behaviors, and we can just jump in and talk about that specifically and what that is. Sure. So 
one of my first jobs out of grad school at Out Youth, which is an LGBT teen center, I had a woman, a young woman come to me and tell me that she was pulling out her hair and she asked if she could join my self-harm group that I was starting. So I told her, of course you can join the group, but let me find out more about hair pulling. And then that's how I even discovered the term trichotillomania. So as I was doing that initial research, I found that there was really only one perspective. It was all cognitive behavioral. So since I came from a psychodynamic perspective, I had to start kind of developing my own way of treating her from that very first moment. And she actually really did get better through our time together, both her time in the group and our individual work together through about six months. And I was kind of hooked on this ability to kind of follow her hair pulling journey told me so much about what was happening in her life at each time and in her relationships at each time. And so it was a really fascinating journey for me to help her work through some of those attachment pieces and early divorce of her parents and how that affected her. And then to also notice that when she was feeling really supported and really connected in her life, her hair pulling started to disappear. So that relational connection fascinated me and I just kept going. Yeah. And, and it wasn't there as you looked for things, you know, nobody had given this attention related to the unconscious process or anything like that. Right. And unfortunately, even though that was all the way back in 2002, that still was really the state of the field. There have been some therapists who have written some peer-reviewed articles with case studies on the psychodynamic approach, but this is actually the first book on this approach and looking at a depth perspective rather than looking at the, the symptom itself as the problem, which I think is really important to get into the roots and understand what's driving the hands to mess with the hair and skin. So this is still state of the art right now, just beginning to come into to more of the, the mental health field is this idea that it might be actually more complicated than just treating the behavior. Yeah, for sure. So you're a pioneer. You're a pioneer, definitely. I am. I'm sort of an unlikely pioneer. I just really wanted to find this book. And since I couldn't find it, I just had to write it. And I'm glad I did, but I really didn't know it would take me 10 years and, and lots of blood, sweat, and tears. So that's where we are. Yeah. As somebody also in the writing process, same thing. It's like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe how long this takes. And then you learn more, you learn more. So you have to go back and you know, modify. And uh, yeah, so that's exciting. exactly. Was there anything personally that drew you to this area? Because honestly, it's a hard subject to talk about. Like I imagine, like the feelings that it evokes around the hair pulling and the skin picking, not everyone would be drawn to that, I would imagine. As a matter of fact, I'm imagining just even having this conversation, it's, it can be hard to, but there's something about it that evokes those difficult feelings. Yes, that's true. A lot of disgust and sort of shame, really, that the people struggling with this also carry and that the therapists have to kind of work through in order to address it. But yeah, there there certainly was, but I didn't realize it when I had that first connection to hair pulling with that client. I didn't realize it was connected to my lifelong struggle, which is with skin picking. And so once I put that together and the field really hadn't recognized skin picking either. So recently, in the DSM-5 was the first time skin picking became a diagnosis. So as I learned more and more about hair pulling, I began to connect it more to my own struggles with skin picking. And they're very similar, very connected. And so as I started to 
write this book, I was really also figuring out how to heal myself. And through the writing of the book is really how I was able to let go of most of my reliance on skin picking. So I'm sort of a case study number one of how finding that narrative and, and getting that story out of myself really helped me let go of this behavior. Oh my gosh, I really appreciate you sharing that. But is, and isn't that almost always the case as we're drawn to this, that we've got to look in the mirror first and do that. So you weren't aware that there was a skin picking thing. So I'm imagining people are listening and they're like, you know, I play with my cuticles. Help us understand what where it crosses over into a problem or a disorder. Yes, that's a great question. So first of all, all of us do engage in some kind of body focused behaviors and Partly, we are animals and all animals groom. And we groom like all animals do and picking at things and plucking hairs and getting dead skin off is part of the grooming process. So all of that is very healthy and, and important and natural. When it becomes a way of coping with emotions that are not being dealt with, then it can really cross over into a way that harms the body. So usually, People don't find it to be a problem unless there's some real physical manifestation. So with hair pulling, it can be a bald spot or with skin picking, it can be, you know, really, really bad scarring, red spots. It can be um, infection. So usually because of the shame that kind of surrounds it until it gets to a point that it's really a problem and in interfering with people's lives, they don't seek treatment for it. Well, they might not even recognize it, just like what you were saying. Right, right. And it's also important, I think, for therapists to know that even at the level where it's not a problem, it can still be communicating someone's distress. So if someone's in your office and begins to pick at their cuticles or feel through their hair or touch their skin, it may be a really good intervention point to try to understand what was the feeling that brought their hand to that spot. So moving right into the somatic, to that, to that bottom-up processing, really. Yes, it's kind of a, as long as you get the feel for it, it can be sort of a straight line in. The thing we have to watch out for is the shame that can come along with that. Oh, man. Yeah, I can so. feel that even just as I form questions and things like that. It is, <laughs> there's something about the nature of this that is so intimate and personal. So intimate. It makes me think of like, you know, when you're first having to learn to talk in therapy and stuff and to get comfortable with sexuality, you know what I mean? You have to almost like really get yourself up to the table to say all the words and get comfortable with them and consider things. You know what I mean? It, it's just hard. Do you find that to be the case or am I just kind of being weird about it? <laughs> no, definitely. Definitely. And that's such an important thing for therapists to begin to recognize because one of our jobs is to take away the shame for the clients and talking about it. And so we have to work on our own disgust and shame ourselves because I'll find that one of the best ways I can set a client at ease is to talk about some of the things that go along with the hair pulling in very visceral terms. So I'll say something like, oh, usually after someone pulls out a hair, they might run it between their fingers or they might like that little sticky bulby part and kind of rub it on their lips or crunch it. You know, which, which of those senses really is part of the process for you? And when I say that in a way that's, that's really straightforward, uh, my clients are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're asking me that. Well, I like that bulby thing. But it took me having to get comfortable with those kind of primitive elements of this in order to be able to be straightforward. 
Yeah, and that example is such a great example because the minute you ask those questions, now a whole world opens up about, oh, actually, no, I saved my hair or I, whatever it is that it's just really beautiful. Now, what about just so that we're clear with everybody what this is about? What about like cutting? Is that considered under this umbrella? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a bit of controversy in the mental health field actually about that question. In the CBT world, they're very clear that they do not think this is related to self-harm. And what I have actually found is that coming back full circle to that client who wanted to join my self-harm group, she had some different characteristics than the people who were cutting, but there were also some similarities. And so what I've learned is that it's a continuum of self-harm behavior. So someone who's cutting is maybe doing it in a way that's a little bit more able to be a cry for help and maybe a little bit more about the pain, whereas somebody who's picking is usually trying to just express their feelings a tiny bit by a tiny bit to keep it hidden and also more to relieve their stress and comfort themselves more so than the pain. But those pieces of pain and comfort can go along with either. And so I think it's really helpful to think of it as a continuum. Yeah. Even self-harm, the picking, people wouldn't identify necessarily that they're actually trying to harm themselves. As a matter of fact, it's, you know, as a more extreme grooming behavior, there's something that might even feel caring. Exactly. And it does release endorphins and soothing. And also a lot of times people are actually trying to correct an imperfection. So there's the overlap with body dysmorphic disorder. So they think they're actually attending to their acne or or whatever it may be. And then once it's over, it's clear that it really just made it worse. So what about overlap with other diagnoses? OCD, anything like that? Yes. Yeah, so actually, this condition is comorbid with so many other mental health conditions. So depression, anxiety, PTSD, as I mentioned, body dysmorphic disorder, OCD. It's under the OCD and other related behaviors umbrella at this point, but it also has impulsive features. And back in, in the a DSM 3 TR, hair pulling was under the impulse control disorder category. So it's been really hard to understand, I think, in some ways, because it does overlap so much with so many of those disorders. And the way that I've come to understand that is that skin picking can regulate emotions in all directions. So it can actually let somebody kind of zone out in a dissociative way to help cope with the intrusive trauma thoughts. Or it can bring somebody into focus with ADHD and be able to concentrate. It can really relieve anxiety and it can also lift up from depression. So I think because it's so effective at regulating emotions, it ends up being hand in hand with so many different struggles that people are working through. And you mentioned dissociation. Is that commonly experienced? Is that part of it an overlap? Yeah. So again, this is part of what I had to clarify in the book because the traditional CBT approach has been very resistant to the idea that there's any connection between trauma and body-focused behaviors. And that's even though they've done research since 1999 that showed that these behaviors usually do develop when there's some kind of attachment disruption. So divorce or the loss of a loved one even though it's clearly connected to some kind of disruption that's been sort of put on the back burner. But there are two different subtypes of picking and pulling. One is more focused, which is more like going in and 
picking at something that seems imperfect and trying to make that better. And the other kind is really unconscious where maybe someone's hand starts to do the twirling and then they dissociate and then come back maybe hours later after having done some some serious damage. And that seems to really be a, connected with that underlying post-traumatic stress disorder as a coping mechanism. Oh, wow. That is interesting. So I'm thinking about self-soothing behaviors in general, whether that be, you know, maybe even rubbing. It's very individualized, right? It's kind of what we stumbled upon as kids that helped us soothe. So it feels like this is like, especially because it's, you know, you always have your body with you. So it would be, you know, using your body and using repetitive motion to self-soothe, but then that going awry or that going taken to an extreme or causing damage. Is that, does that fit? That fits exactly. Yes. And one way to, uh, to think about it is as grooming gone wild, like you were sort of indicating this healthy behavior kind of taken out of context and used in a different way that then becomes problematic. Well, and who can't identify something repetitive behavior that one does, right? Like when we open it up like that, there's, I mean, it's a good thing. You know, we need to be able to self-soothe. So it really takes the shame out, putting it in this context of, no, this is, you know, everybody has had to find something <laughs> and it just sort of sucks if you ended up with something that would, or that it that went astray and that then became problematic for you. But, but that the seed of it is so normal. And like you said, not just in humans, but across mammals, I imagine, of the grooming behavior, things like that. Right, right. And that part is so fascinating because there have also been many studies of animals who engage in over-grooming behaviors. And I find that so fascinating that they tend to engage in those behaviors for the same reasons that humans do. And so we're really parallel. They found that animals are triggered by boredom, by isolation, by frustration, and by the feeling or experience of being trapped in too small of a space. And most of my clients can relate to- I was just going to say, (laughs) (laughs) what a great entry into getting more insight around it. Because certainly I'm thinking of birds that pull their feathers, understimulated and you know, we've seen, we have a rescue zoo here and it's just so painful. The monkeys and the, oh, very painful, but it's all, you know, I remember seeing one with a um, stuffed animal and he was grooming the stuffed animal. But so many times you see the bald spots, you know, just, it seems so clear when you think of it as an animal, that that is a sign of distress, that that's not just a cognitive bad habit. (laughs) Exactly. And also that it's related to the environment. That's something that a lot of my clients, you know, they come in and they think, what's wrong with me? And sometimes it's really, well, wait, maybe this is some things in your environment that haven't been working for you. And the exciting thing is that veterinarians have found that when they change some of the circumstances in the animal's environment, they can actually let go of those behaviors. So that also gives us the idea that we can also let go of behaviors, but it's not just by changing ourselves, it's by changing our environment and the way that we relate to other people in our environment. Oh, I love that. And so this is where your work really picks up is really interpreting it. So in order to change the environment, we would have to figure out what, what's wrong or what we need. So, you know, beginning to like interpret it. And uh, so tell us more about kind of how you have taken the field in the direction of kind of how you work with it and 
your findings, basically? Sure. Well, one thing that comes to mind is that when we start to look at the environment and some contributing factors, one personality characteristic that is very common in people who pick polar bite is perfectionism. And it goes along with people pleasing and sort of this overachieving. And myself, I can relate to all of those words and can see myself how some of those perfectionistic tendencies meant that I was actually hiding certain things from myself and from the world. And so looking at, well, what, what are those things? What does it mean to be a perfectionist or people pleaser? Well, for me, what I discovered is that the thing that, that gets left behind is usually anger and frustration. And so a lot of my clients come to me without any awareness that they are angry at any time. And then what we find is that that anger has to come out somewhere. It kind of gets pushed down into sort of aggressive energy. And that energy is what fills those hands. And so oftentimes, actually working with people on getting in touch with their frustration, anger, and being able to express it is really what's transformative. Then there's not so much of that energy building up in the body. And of course, there's any number of challenges to expressing your anger and being more assertive in the environments that you're in. So that's a whole process too. And a lot of times people are used to you being a people pleaser and a perfectionist and don't necessarily feel comfortable when you start to express your anger. Yeah, I was wondering that about the role of aggression, because there is a way, because this, you know, we're talking about it more mildly, but this can take very, very severe forms. And I've certainly had some clinical experience with that, where that it's very, very destructive. And then the notion of anger and aggression and being able to study that even just the exploration of like, what does this behavior mean? And beginning to get curious about that, that just opens up a whole world. Opens up a whole world. Yes. Yeah. So aggression is a big piece of it. Aggression is a big piece of it. Takes time to get to. The other pieces that I would say, really, I've discovered once going down into the roots of the behavior are these pieces of attachment disruptions and some difficulties in development. So usually, as I mentioned, a lot of body-focused behaviors do arise around adolescence, and there usually is some kind of a trigger that is one of those attachment disruptions. But one thing that I discovered only after really being in the field and really studying, hearing from the parents of teenagers I work with and also learning more about the early lives of my clients is that a lot of times there was also a disruption in those very, very early years, zero to two. There's also a sensory processing issue that develops at a very early age. And so I've really been studying how sensory processing and difficulties, disruptions and attachment all kind of come together to lay the ground for this to come out later in life. So you said that it typically emerges in adolescence. If, if we just kind of create a story, if, if you'd be okay with that, sure. um, we'll make up a story. Someone, let's say, gets referred to you pulling out their eyelashes. Or what would be the most common thing that you would see? Let me ask you that. Yeah, that that's definitely a common one. Yes. And sometimes um, that'll happen all at once. So somebody discovers that they might be able to pull out an eyelash, maybe even like make a wish on it. And then maybe they're in a math test and all of a sudden they come home and 
their eyelashes are gone. And their mother is like, what? Where are your eyelashes? And that's where the crisis kind of comes into play. So would that be something like less if she had just discovered that as something that was soothing or useful, would that fit this disorder or would it have to be persistent? Would it have to continue? Yeah. So that would just be the beginning of it, right? It might not develop into a habit and a behavioral kind of something that someone relies on behaviorally right away. So if, if actually, if mom brings the client to me right then, sometimes we can figure it out and and really let it go and find other soothing mechanisms. And it's kind of once it goes on, people don't usually come the very first time. Usually they also try a lot of behavioral strategies and that can lead to actually its own problems because then people are kind of struggling with mom's telling me I have to keep putting on band-aids. I don't want to put on band-aids. Now I'm rebelling against mom and it can get really complicated if you go too quickly to try to just take it away. So then um, if we just follow that story through, so mom refers and what would kind of a course of treatment look like for someone like this? First, I have to set the stage with a number of of pieces. One is that I'm not going to try to take this away from you right away. We're not going to fix this. We're not going to try to get rid of it. That I'm going to give you some early behavioral strategies like fiddle toys. That's fine. We can use those from the beginning, but they're not going to really probably stick until we look at what is going on under the surface here. So we have to understand what you're coping with in order to understand more about other ways we can meet those needs. And fiddle toys. Can you, I'm sorry. Fiddle yeah, toys are. sure. Fiddle toys. So um, I have plenty in my office. My favorite are thinking putties. So crazy Aaron's thinking putty. And these are my, this is my personal stash. So I use these, especially when I'm, when I'm on zoom all day long, my fingers get restless. And that's one way that I cope. There's also kind of, rocks or stones that can be kind of worry stones and even those puppets um yeah i have my whole my whole <laughs> so now, these are, are really popular with youngins these days but oh. uh, when you pop them, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah i see so, those at the checkout stand <laughs> exactly so i do tell my clients that you know they're going to be fiddlers they are people who need more sensory stimulation in their fingers and so no matter what we do no matter what we process underneath there's still going to be extra need for stimulation and we just are going to have to have something else in our repertoire to help with our restlessness. Oh, I, I can so identify with this related to like I've looked I have looked down before and had torn up tiniest, tiniest little things. You know what I mean? Just where that it was like this, you know, I just got it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller or certainly holding things during a session or like uh, I have wood, little pieces of wood uh, that I you know, like a, from a, let's say a hike or something from a beautiful tree. I collect stuff like that or rocks and end up, uh, I've actually had a client one time say, hi, I wonder what it means. You picked up your, <laughs> picked up your little, um, you know, thing that you fiddle with. So yeah, <laughs> it's like, funny. Oh, that's a great question. That is a great it question. What great does question. it mean? <laughs> yes. My clients do that to me all the time. If my, my foot will go and, yeah. and they'll, they'll ask, well, what, what is your foot saying, Stacey? And, I, and they're right. They're saying something. <laughs> saying something. Yes. My body communicates too. Uh, okay. So you're not going to take it away from them. No. You, you might divert some or, you know, find it, find more, uh, right. more maintainable ways. 
And then, and then what happens? I have a whole chapter in the book about a safety phase because I feel like that is important for everyone. But one thing I'm doing there is also assessing for trauma and trying to understand how complicated those roots are. And that'll really guide treatment. So I'm, I'm really doing a full assessment in that first phase, however long that may take. We're also setting realistic goals. So most of my clients want to get rid of this completely. And so we have to work on what's realistic. What about if we think about moderation? And what if we imagine a moderate level where it doesn't interfere with your life? And that way we aren't setting ourselves up for this perfection relapse cycle that is so common when people do engage in the CBT world. A lot of times they're very successful at first, partly that people pleasing and perfectionism, but then all that tension is building up and then a relapse can be devastating. So I, I teach people about kind of, I use a lot of metaphors. So there's a stress cup that we think about that's inside of us building up with all those four different stressors and anything else that may be in the way. And I like to think about how to reduce the stressors in the stress cup so that the urges aren't so strong rather than trying to resist the urges. You said the four different stressors? Yes, that isolation, frustration, sense of being trapped, and boredom. Boredom is kind of the easiest one to address because, of course, just like animals, we're not sort of doing as much during the day as is in our nature, right? Like the animals who become our pets. So when we provide them of their stimulation, we have to think about, well, how am I sort of suffering from sitting at a desk all day long? And what am I not giving my body as far as my body is bored, even if my mind is stimulated? So that's sort of the easiest one, but all of the other ones kind of come in and are more complicated to tease out. Yeah. Okay. No, that's good. And going back to that, because I, I heard you mention it related to the animals. Yeah. That it's always really nice to have, you know, like the, here are four things that you can check in with yourself about. So that's definitely. Really then another piece of the sort of psychoeducation, because what we're working on here is we're working on breaking the cycle of shame where you pick and pull and then you feel really bad about yourself and then you pick and pull. And so another piece of the psychoeducation that helps is connecting us to the, the animals and just exploring what you and I just went through in terms of how much it makes sense when people begin to engage in, in these behaviors and how we have to understand them as coping mechanisms and not just something to hate. And then once we get through that and we can start to at least have some compassion for the behaviors, people do find that once that cycle is broken, that's the first step. They tend to engage. Even if they engage in their behaviors, it won't last as long and it won't be as destructive. So that's really the first step. So now you've got the behavior kind of interrupted to some degree. What would be the next step? Yeah. So then we begin. So just like any psychodynamic process, we're in the moment, right? People come in with what they have on their minds and we work on that therapeutic alliance and my nervous system is also connected to their nervous system. So I find that a lot of those first months is me using my nervous system to maybe have some clues to what they might be feeling that they aren't recognizing. And so maybe somebody is smiling as they're telling a story and I'll start to feel choked up in my throat and then begin to, to help them own what feeling might be in our throats. Because usually if my throat 
is feeling a lump, their throat is feeling a lump. And then we can start putting words to some of the things that have been under the surface. And that's where, you know, all that therapeutic work of processing trauma and letting it go and processing some of the stories we have about ourselves from our early lives that lead us to pick and pull and and really being able to change the story with a different viewpoint. So that's that beautiful therapeutic dyad moving into new ways of understanding what one is feeling and then how to cope with those feelings. So I guess I would say part a big part of that is helping people begin to express anger toward me in ways that they haven't been able to do. And then when they find that that relieves their urges to pick and pull, then that becomes a motivator to try to do that in the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. It's always so fun when that can actually begin to happen. You know what I mean? That what I get to, you know, sometimes I'll say, um, well, if I'm analyzing you, you get to analyze me, you know, (laughs) and then, you know, when, when people really take me up on that, it's like so exciting. So really then you're just doing kind of deeper level trauma work and uh, developmental attachment work and really kind of the unconscious process and making the, making the, uh, helping them create their narratives update their narratives to healthier, more secure narratives. Uh, so it, it, then it proceeds in kind of a, what a kind of a deep psychotherapy process would look like. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's a really important piece just to understand is that working with this is so similar to working with any kind of behavioral manifestation of internal distress, whether it's substance abuse or eating disorders or whatever it may be. And it's always helpful just to know more about the specifics of each population so that you can speak someone's language and really have them felt understood. So for example, just even knowing that there's sensory processing issues early in life can really be a way in, like just asking someone, you know, did you happen to have some skin sensitivities, maybe where you didn't like the tag on the back of clothing or the lining on socks? And my clients are like, wait, you know me. And that's like, Oh, that's an in. So even though we're working with something that is similar to so many other processes, once you know some more of the details, you can really form the alliance much more quickly. Oh man, I can see that totally taken off. And I like then putting it back in context of we end up developing this these symptoms that at some point were a solution to something. Yeah. So the symptoms can look all these different ways, but ultimately once those very specific things are addressed, then we can get to those underlying things. And that's one of the things you've been able to contribute to take this further than the CBT literature has been able to do is really, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because I think, you know, I I personally was somebody who I was never interested in just a quick fix of sort of dealing with the surface level of my problems. I was somebody who always wanted to follow the roots to the bottom and excavate. And and I've found that that's where transformation comes from. So that's what I believe in. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned something in your book, as far as we're kind of talking about treatment now, but the uh, healing herd. Yes. Can you say more about that? Yes. Well, and so I'll just mention a a lovely book, Zoobiquity by Barbara Natterson Horowitz and Catherine Bowers. And they introduced this idea they did some of the research that I mentioned, in particular with horses who are over-grooming. And what they found is that 
that isolation that's a part of the behavior, they found that you could even put a chicken in a horse's pen and it didn't even have to be the same species and the horse might be relieved of some of its behaviors. And so they, they oh thought God, about- so touching. Yeah, so sweet, so sweet. <laughs> so they, they imagined in, in this chapter that they had about over-grooming, they imagined a healing herd coming together where people would could relate to one another and almost positive, you know, do that positive grooming of one another more through words than touch, but that that could be a healing force. And I have definitely found that group psychotherapy has benefits way beyond just what I can do individually in that people develop a herd. They develop a community of people like them and they feel less isolated and less, you know, of course that relieves the shame too, when they realize that other people who, who they like and respect are also engaging in these behaviors. My heart actually feels really touched, I think, uh, from the chicken and the horse. But also <laughs> the, idea, the idea of a healing herd, one association I have to that is that it's not healing anything specific because each little individual in the herd has their own individual histories and their own issues. So the herd, it's like, it's whatever it is that's wrong. Yeah. Um, it's not just healing the one thing and somebody needs you know, boundaries and somebody needs to be able to set them. Somebody needs to be able to respect them. But like that, the healing herd, you just figure it out. And by having that interpersonal contact and group therapy, I cannot agree more. It's like providing nutrients, providing nutrients. And we don't know kind of what our deficits are, but it lifts everybody up. And now we're all having more, have more nutrients of whatever that is. Yeah, it's just an association I had around it. And I love, love, love the idea of a healing herd. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think being able to start to put words to feelings is really what what my particular herd tends to struggle the most with and tends to be able to help one another the most with. In the book, you talked about the idea of psychic skin. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. So that takes us back to that fascination I have with those early years. And Esther Bick, actually, who was a modern analyst, she was writing in 1968. And she came up with the idea of the psychic skin. And it really hasn't been picked up very much in more modern literature, but it's it's such a key component. She was working with children at the time and babies. And so she was really looking at development and what happens to create secure attachment and what can get in the way. And she was noticing that if a parent can do a couple of things, very important things, the first is relax his or her own body while holding the baby and usually in a feeding moment. So whoever happens to be feeding the baby, it doesn't have to be breastfeeding, but all of the senses need to be involved. So someone needs to feel held and that gaze has to be there and the taste, the smell, all of those things combine to create deep relaxation. So that deep relaxation is one of the ingredients of the psychic skin. And the other one is that a parent has to be able to contain all of the feelings that a child has, a baby has. So a baby can't really regulate her own feelings. So that despair and rage and helplessness all of that, a parent needs to be able to hold the baby and contain those feelings and calm the baby from there. Now, if a parent can't do either of those, that's oftentimes not a fault of the parents, 
the parent may be trying as hard as, as they can, but it may be that the parent has never gotten that ability to fully relax. Or it may be that the parent is just in a situation where they've lost a parent all of a sudden and they can't really cope. Or it may be that they never learned how to handle their own anger so they can't tolerate when their child is angry. So if those pieces are in place, that psychic skin kind of forms a container for the developing self. And if those pieces are not in place, that container develops holes. And then the way that Esther Bick kind of understands it is that then we need to create compensatory behaviors to fill in those holes. And that's where a false self comes in. And that's where I kind of connected in that perfectionism with some of those early wounds, because it's a way of compensating for something that feels off where you don't feel comfortable in your own skin and you can't name it and it's hard to work through, but you have to compensate for it. Mm -hmm. I just love that. And even the instruction, the specifics about the holding feel like it could be so, because somebody who didn't know, you know what I mean? Wasn't held that way. You know, feeding is more task, hurry, hurry, hurry. I've got to get out the door, you know? Um, not that I've ever done that in my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) It's always hard, you know, to learn some of these things and think back, but, but, uh, so you weren't held that way, but just hearing those words and being able to imagine like, oh, okay, that I, I can see that I can see the value of that. I would like to do that. Can that slow me down so that I'm connecting. And it's almost like we always are like resonate, connect, you know what I mean? Mirror. But what does that even mean? And I, there was something about that description of the psychic skin that feels like it's like, oh, that's what that means. Uh, it kind of like makes it, it really clear. This it feels like that it clear. kind of puts it together around like, because you can kind of go through the list of your own senses <laughs> because some of this stuff, it's so right brain, you know, there's no words for it. But, but these are words of like, you know, what are your eyes doing? You know, even when you were talking about smell, like tuning into the smell of your baby, just all of these things that are all about prosody really, but, but nobody knows what, you know, prosody being like tone, pitch, rate of speech, like all these, not just nonverbal, but these signals of safety. So when you're able to get your body using all of your senses into this comfortable space, And of course, we're not just talking about holding infants. We're also talking about being with your partner, being with your therapist, or if you are a therapist, being able to bring your, all of your senses online. Uh, So it's so interesting. And that's a great point, Sue, because, you know, that's the exciting thing. We're not just discovering what might've been missing as therapists. We're also in the position to be able to create that kind of environment. So that's where my nervous system when I can fully relax with a client, when I can relax with a client's intense feelings and hold that space, that's where that earned secure attachment comes in, where we can repair even those early years. So part of what we're doing with this related to the podcast is like, these are all examples of being able to use attachment related, you know, updated attachment related work that, and by updated, we mean, you know, culture, class, all of it, like the the newer science, you can hear how much the relational neurobiology is in everything that you're talking about, about the, the psychic skin is that. Is that. It, it, right. It's a bioregulation uh, between two people. 
So it's really great. And so you've brought um, this specific disorder into the fold of, okay, no, this is, this also fits around looking at these unconscious processes. Right, right. And I think a lot of people, even when they really include the body, they leave out the skin. And so yeah, um, I, think I think that's, that's true. Really that's part of why it was like, I was even awkward at the beginning. Like, how do we talk about something like, you know? Yes, but skin is where those first connections are made with touch. Totally. And so, yeah, it's all sort of about the skin. And so, yeah, it can sort of add a dimension. Oh, it's more than that. It's really, really adding to the field. And I can imagine, you know, this just being the beginning of that. You, you showed you the book. I'll show it again. Uh, it's, it's, it's very small. Mm -hmm. So it is very, I would highly recommend getting it if you are a clinician or if you're a parent um, that is, you know, or yourself, it's very accessible. It's not too, you know, jargony. That was my goal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's going to be good for everybody. Is there anything else that we didn't hit on that you want to be sure yeah, and say? Well, yeah, you mentioned, I think you mentioned like race and ethnicity. And I guess I will say too, there's a lot of relevance to all of those pieces with these disorders and a lot more research could be done. But if you think about skin and hair, that's where a lot of our ethnic and like even as, as a, a person who, who grew up Jewish, like I can relate to even just sort of this waviness of my hair that's different than other Christian Caucasian people in my school, right? I had different hair. And so um, I know from a personal level, and then I know from, from just conversations with clients and others that so much of the relationship that is sort of unspoken around how people feel towards you kind of relates to your hair and skin. And then if it's unconscious, sort of how you process it, you can take it out on your hair and skin. So that's just another piece that I think I touch on in the book, but could really be a lot more developed and has just huge relevance in terms of, you know, if you think about what's good hair, what's good skin in different cultures and different families and all that plays into that, I think there's just, there's a lot there. Wow. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Just pushing this idea of skin and hair forward and in our consciousness and our awareness. And, you know, when you're in more of the dominant culture, those are things necessarily that aren't as primary. You, you, you take them for granted. You don't notice versus if you are outside of any script that you're wherever that you're raised, if you're outside of the script, I mean, I certainly got totally, um, I mean, I'm, I'm within the script most of the way, but like the, I got terribly teased for my red hair. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. I would get on the bus and everybody would start going, uh, 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 you know, like Woody Woodpecker. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's such a teeny, teeny, tiny example of something that you can't control that then people have these responses to. And in that case, you know, teasing is one thing, but boy, you know, having curly hair when people don't have curly hair. Somebody had said something about like what makes where you can identify if you are of color or not is that if a police officer would more likely pull you over based on your physical appearance, which is just an interesting concept of um, what this is what we're talking about, skin and hair being the signal that somebody's responding to for sure. And then all of the external 
pieces that brings in, but then also the internalized pieces. Oh, totally. Yeah. In some of these behaviors. So it makes me want to invite all of uh, our audience to just go and take such great care of your skin, like put on <laughs> your favorite lotion. You know what I mean? Like love yourself, love mm. your hair. So there was two other things. One was you had mentioned wanting to get in a group of dermatologists. Oh, okay. Sure. Yes. I was just, just wanted to, to mention, mention, just to mention them. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to mention the field of psychodermatology and some of your listeners may be fascinated by even this idea like I was when I first heard of it, but actually dermatologists are more at the cutting edge of working with these behaviors than the mental health field has. In fact, dermatologists named both dermatillomania skin picking and trichotillomania. And that was a hundred years before they really got into the mental health lexicon. So what a, a number of dermatologists kind of realized is this is complicated and there are lots of psychosocial factors where the, the environment both affects the skin conditions and then the skin conditions then affects mental health. So it goes both ways. And so it mostly in Europe, um, but coming into America, there are more clinics that are psychodermatology clinics where they have a psychiatrist, a psychologist and, or, or social worker and a dermatologist all working together to address the whole person. And I just love that field. And I'm getting a little bit more involved as I kind of learn more and I'm really excited about it. The psychodermatology community also recognizes things like the connection of trauma with body focused behaviors and also identifies that self-harm continuum. So a lot of the things that I've sort of been on my own with in the mental health community, I've found partners in the psychodermatology community. Oh, that's so great. I love anything integrative like that because they can add so much. Um, and of course you can add so much. And so if somebody's listening and they are like, oh my gosh, you guys are talking about me or my child, you know, speak to them directly right now. Yeah. Well, I would say, first of all, really be aware that self-compassion is the most important first step. And if you're a parent and your child is struggling with it, really working on being able to, to work through your own feelings about how hard it is to see this visible sign of distress in your child so that you can really focus in on what are you needing and what is this communicating and what is what can I take from this to learn about how I can help you versus how can I get rid of this, I think is sort of the most important piece. And I will, I will tell people um, there, is, there is a site, bfrb.org, and it is the TLC Foundation for BFRBs. They do offer a lot of resources. Now, they also only endorse the CBT approach, so that's something to consider, but they also have retreats, conferences, and ways to connect in and lists of therapists and support groups. So that's also a good resource. Oh, that's great. Can you say it again? Sure. It's the TLC Foundation for BFRBs and it's bfrb.org. Okay, great. So we'll for sure catch that in the show notes. And then what about you? Somebody's excited about your energy and what you have to say and want to learn from you or work with you. What, what, what's the next steps there? That's a great question. So I'm actually, I'm starting a training group in September that is based on the book. So we'll go through the introduction in the nine chapters in the 10 weeks. And it's an opportunity to learn kind of in vivo more about 
what it's like to be in the room with me when I'm working with people um, who are who are picking and pulling. So we'll go into a depth approach and look at both personal and professional connections to the material and have time for case consultations. But in in the training group, we'll be paying attention to what comes up in our own bodies and be talking about that. So it'll be a really integrative training group approach. I have that on my website at stacynakel.com. And I also can be reached at stacy.nakel at gmail.com for more information. And if you do go to my website, I have a whole lot of blogs on there that I wrote that helped me as I was writing the book. So a lot of the information that we've talked about that can be found in my book was also first written on my blog. So that's great. So can you spell your name so that people can really- Sure. S-T-A-C-Y and then dot N-A-K-E-L-L at gmail.com or just S-T-A-C-Y-N-A-K-E-L-L.com is my website. Okay, great. That's really wonderful. And just the, another thought I had just as you were talking about to the parents or to someone themselves as far as self-compassion. And I was thinking about that, the idea of like the beginning of the thing about like getting comfortable in your own body about beginning to address some this stuff is really, I mean, you know, you guys heard me, you can witness it. Like it's, you have to almost get into a different state. And us talking about disgust early on, just the word disgust, for those of you that are wanting to address this, or you, maybe you have a client, you, maybe you're a therapist and you have a client that you want to be able to do better at talking about this that there is something about like, it's just disgust, like something about getting okay with the feeling of disgust. Like sometimes I think of it like a keyboard of feelings, right? And it's like just a note. It's just disgust. It's there for a reason. And it's especially evoked when around bot, like anything that is ejected from the body. I mean, less so if it's our body <laughs> or right. our body stuff is a little bit less gross than somebody else's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that's probably designed that way as far as like keeping us safe. So that disgust and that pull away and that aversion is just, it, that's all that it is. Like it's morally neutral. So that as you kind of belly up and it's like, oh, that's, you know, my, I can feel my face making the face or whatever, the cringe of disgust. It's like, oh, that's, that is a most normal thing. It is wired in to feel the feeling. And I could tell over the course of the conversation, it's like, oh, okay, wait, wait, that's just the, that, no, that's all it is. That's a great way to put it. Yes. And I guess I will just add that for me, this is just something that I actually am a bit squeamish. And just like you said, I, I, I have my own behaviors, but I actually can't handle witnessing someone else's. So that's one way that that I sort of came up with this rule that we can talk about behaviors in here, but we can't do the behaviors in here. So if I see your hand going to your skin or your hair, I'm going to ask you to pick up something sensory because that way I can work with you and also be, be honest with myself that I, I really don't want to watch you picking at your skin. Um, yeah. But I, that's where the level of disgust for me would go over the edge. But talking about it, I'm quite comfortable with. Oh, Stacey, I think that's so, like those kinds of concrete things um, are, it's so helpful. And you're also modeling, like you for, it's the whole idea. You have to take care of yourself first. If you're distracted and can't, you know, you're having this big reaction about not what they're talking about, you know, you lose contact with the rest of you know, what you're feeling. It's like you have to, that has to come first. And so that was such a great example of being realistic about 
bellying up to some of these very difficult and painful, yeah. you know, behaviors. Oh, good. I'm glad that helped. Yeah. Really smart. Okay. Well, totally recommend it. Treatment for Body Focused Repetitive Behaviors, uh, Stacey Nickel. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Be sure and check out the show notes. You will have uh, all of these references there. So we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 